Good morning. It's great to be presenting uh, this morning and sharing God's word with you. Um, what I'd like to do this, this morning is introduce you to a few images from Scripture that will hopefully bring you encouragement, um, will hopefully under, help you understand the story of Scripture a little bit better, and help you understand God's faithfulness in keeping His promises. Uh, so this first picture that I wanted to give you is the idea of covenant or promise. Promises are made every day, and there are many ways to show that a promise is made. Elijah had me pinky swear the other day that I would hook up the Nintendo. Marriage is a covenant or a promise that is marked by many things, most noticeably a ring signifying that this person is promised to someone else. I work in sales, and clients sign contracts We agree to provide a service, and they agree to give us money. That's a type of covenant or promise. There's a great story with the reformer Martin Luther. Um, There's the way that his journey started was with a promise to God. So the story goes, while traveling, Martin Luther gets caught in this great storm, and God says, or Martin says to God, if you let me live through this storm, I will become a monk. And he lived through the storm, and he kept his promise, and it changed the entire world. In Scripture, we see many examples of promises or covenants. One we're going to look at this morning is in Genesis chapter 15. So if you want to uh, go on, your, on the Bible app on your phone, or if you want to flip there uh, to Genesis 15, we'll, we're going to skip around a few of these verses, but I'll read them. We're going to read verse 1, um, verses 5 through 10 verses 12 and verses 17 and 18. So this is often called the Abrahamic covenant. Let's read some of Genesis 15 together here, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, the number of the stars, and number the stars if you are are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon." And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. Now this type of covenant is actually uh, what in the ancient Near East is referred to as a suzerainty vassal covenant. Someone superior or someone royal more pow- or more powerful was the suzerain would actually make a covenant with a lower person, the vassal. Now this would usually mean that the more powerful person would be giving something of value, and the vassal would then usually be performing some kind of a task or physical labor, or they'd have to do something to hold up their end of the covenant. 
So this was a covenant of unequals already. The suzerain is great, the vassar is lesser. And this covenant is basically seen in terms of an enacted curse. The party who violates it would be bound to become like the slain animals. The symbol of this agreed-upon covenant is that both parties would actually walk through the two parts of the cut animal. So I want to kind of set the picture for you. You know, there's a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old ram, a three-year-old, what was the other animal? It wasn't an aardvark or anything like that. It was something that was actually on purpose. Um, It was a three-year-old goat. And then the two birds kind of at the end um, of this line. And Abram would actually have probably made a trench kind of in the middle of these animals. And the symbol of this covenant being agreed upon is that the suzerain and the vassal would then walk basically between these two cut animals and walk through their blood. And at the end, the whole idea is basically, if you don't fulfill your end, you're just like the slain animals that you walk through. And if you don't fulfill your end, then you're just like the slain animals that you walked through as well. Now, emergency broadcast. <laughs> so Abraham, Abraham knows this, and we see in these verses that he becomes terrified at the thought of making a life or death covenant with the living God. So in verse 12, we read that a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And a dreadful darkness fell on him. Some translation have it as a great terror overwhelmed him. This dreadfulness, darkness idea, if you were an original reader of Genesis, you would know that basically because of this sheer terror that all of a sudden comes upon Abraham and this darkness that falls on him, he falls flat on his face and just passes out at the terror of making this covenant with God. So the fire and smoke And the flaming torch, symbols of the presence of God, would pass through and make this covenant himself. God is basically saying, I know Abraham can't fulfill his side of the promise. So I will make this covenant against my own life. One commentator says it like this, Instead of walking between the separated bodies, Abraham was sent into a deep sleep, and so the Lord passed through alone. And this is generally seen as indicating that God would be solely obligated to fulfill the covenant promises. Now, there are other passages in Genesis um, that talk about Abraham's side of the covenant. We've seen it here that he believed God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Belief in God is one of those things. Do you believe what God is promising? Another thing that Abraham had to do was to teach the next generation of the promises that God made with Abraham and and have it go on to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. That was one of the things that Abraham was supposed to do. So this is the first picture that I hope you understand the idea of God having and making these covenants and fulfilling his promises. I'm going to come back to this um, in just a minute, but I wanted to show you the next image is going to be from Psalm 23. Um, And now this is a very popular psalm. I'm going to read through it and then kind of explain um, basically this whole idea, Um, one of the pieces in here. So Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I've always read these passages with a very Western understanding. When I think of green pastures, I think of lush, wonderful calming with soft grass that you can just fall in like a mattress and there's a waterfall in the background that's just kind of gently flowing down and as you're laying there's a trickle of a brook there and you're just resting in green pastures. King David who wrote this psalm of course grew up as a shepherd and in in the ancient Near East shepherding mostly happened in desert areas. So I wanted to show you what Middle Eastern shepherds actually call green pastures, which it looks like this. This is a green pasture. Rock, rocky terrain, tough terrain, hillsides, away from cities and people, out in the wilderness, in the desert, that's where animals are grazed. But enough rain comes down in the rainy seasons, right on cue, to provide for a little bit of growth. And moisture from bodies of water like the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River kind of breeze off into the desert, which provide just enough little moisture for green pastures to pop up, which is, if you could see the next picture, um, you'd see that is a green pasture. Most of the time, God is not going to lead us into a lush green area where we have unlimited resources. Life is tough and really dry at times. And those green pastures are going to be just enough to sustain you through that tough time, through that desert time. And you'll be fed, and you'll be provided for, and you'll have rest, but you have to keep living. And the next tough or challenging time is just around the corner, and the good shepherd's going to lead you to another little tuft of green pasture that comes up. Much like the lamp that guides our feet for the next step that's talked about in Psalm, the good shepherd leads us to the next little green pasture so we have enough to sustain and make it through. The last picture or final images I'm going to give you a few this morning here are of Jesus' final hours before the crucifixion. Jesus has a meal with his disciples, the Passover meal, Now, this is probably a traditional Seder meal, and there's a few things that I wanted to highlight so you can kind of understand what's going on in these passages. Um, And the first thing is that despite some of the the very popular artwork that we see about the Last Supper, uh, Jesus and his disciples are probably not sitting. Scripture makes it very clear in Luke 22, 14, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, Um, and the apostles with him. So the way that this would work is the table probably wasn't even like a straight table like we see in a lot of popular artwork, but it was actually a U-shaped type table, and they would lay um, on their left-hand side so their right hand was kind of free to uh, grab food or dip bread. So if you were having a conversation with someone to to next to you, you were having it with the back of their head. 
If you wanted to talk with someone behind you, you were kind of you know, doing one of those things um, so that they knew that you were talking with them. Now, the seating of the table is, is, is pretty important. Um, it it kind of goes through uh, just one of the ideas that has really meant a lot to me. Um, so we know one of these places uh, where Jesus was probably sitting is on the left-hand side of the table, the second um, from, from, the, from the end. This was the seat of honor. Now, you kind of remember some of the stories that the disciples are discussing with themselves, like, who's the greatest, right? Because they want to know who's sitting to the right and to the left of Jesus. Well, Scripture gives us some of those clues in John 13, 23. It says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, which is John, talking about himself, there you go, um, was reclining at uh, the table at Jesus' side. So we know that John is probably um, to the right of Jesus, because John is reclining on him, other translations say. Now we probably know where, where Peter was, um, because in the very next verse it says, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So Jesus was talking about, I'm going I'm, I'm to dip bread with this person, and that's the person who's going to betray me. So John, uh, sitting across or from Peter, Peter motions to him and goes, hey, who's Jesus talking about? Try to find out who Jesus is talking about. Now, the person actually to the left of Jesus would have probably been Judas. Because in John 13, 26, it says, When he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So it's not like he was dipping the morsel and like chucking it across the table at him. He was probably dipping it and then looking back and saying, you know, what you're going to do, go and do it quickly. Which, you know, if you're Judas and all of a sudden Jesus is giving you one of these with the morsel, you're probably like... Not really the turn back look that you want to see from Jesus at that point, if you were ready to betray him. So I want to show you the picture of the seating at the table so you can kind of get this idea. It probably looked like this. There's John, there's Jesus, there's Judas, and Peter's actually at the other end. And this end is actually called, in the Seder meal, the servant seat. So when Jesus gets up and starts washing the feet of the disciples, which is a little bit easier if they're all kind of reclined, you're just going through and washing the feet, he goes all the way around the table and gets to Peter last, and Peter's like, I'm the one who should be washing your feet. I'm the one sitting in the servant's seat. But Jesus teaches really valuable lessons, kind of even in those moments. Luke chapter 22, verse 27 Jesus says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus gets up from the seat of honor and goes and does what the servant should be doing. And a great verse that accentuates this as well is Mark chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. It says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Another thing to know about Passover is that the meal is about remembering God bringing his people out of slavery of the Egyptians. And all of that you can read in Exodus. This is the whole Moses story where God calls Moses to lead his people out of slavery into the promised land. So this whole Passover meal was to remember that God has set them free. 
So during the Seder, there were four times that you would drink the, the cup of wine to symbolize four promises that God gives. And he gives those actually in Exodus chapter 6. We read that earlier. Exodus chapter 6 verse 6 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So these are the four promises found um, that the Passover meal was all kind of built around. The first promise is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and I will take you to be my people. You're going to be under my protection now. I'm going to accept you as my people. Now I believe the third cup, the I will redeem you, is the cup that Jesus takes when he makes a new covenant in his blood. And that's Luke 22:20. And he says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. I will redeem you. He takes that promise and he makes it a new covenant. The fourth cup, I believe, is also mentioned in Scripture in Matthew chapter 26. Um, It actually starts in verse 29, but Jesus doesn't drink from this cup. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus doesn't drink this cup, the fourth cup, of I will take you to be my people because he knows that his time has come where he won't be under the protection of God. He won't have that acceptance. He's going to be separated from God in the coming hours as he is about to be crucified. So he won't drink that cup again until the promise is fulfilled. Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room and they head to a garden near the Mount of Olives. Now this is outside the city of Jerusalem, so they go from inside the city to outside the city. And one of the interesting things is uh, the Bible says in John 18 um, that he went out with his disciples and he went across the Kidron Valley and the Kidron Brook. Now it's said that the blood of the sacrifices that were made at the temple, there was kind of this uh, hole in the side that all of the blood of the sacrifices that were just made for all of the families of Israel that came to Jerusalem that week to celebrate Passover, the blood would flow out the side of the temple and drain into the Kidron Valley. And it looks something like this. This is kind of the blood pouring out of the temple And then it would drain into this brook in the Kidron Valley. And here, Jesus now walks through the blood of the sacrifice of all of the families of Israel that were made during the Passover feast as he's on his way to the cross. Now during Passover, there was actually a fifth cup. This cup was the cup of Elijah. 
It was saved for Elijah because it was believed that Elijah would come and settle any kind of disputes that rabbis and teachers would have about Passover, about theology, about whatever was supposed to come about. And one of the things that they debated about was whether or not a cup should be in the Passover meal that represented the cup of God's wrath. So they said, well, we'll just have this out and leave it as a cup for Elijah for him to decide. So this became the cup of God's wrath, which is seen in Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25. It says, Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the people that call out, the people that call not your name. Jeremiah 25, 15 says, Thus the Lord says, The God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Instead of drinking the, the cup during the Passover meal, the Elijah cup, there are, there are some traditions to this day that still recite some of these verses um, from Psalm and from Lamentations. Uh, these verses are still recited today. Pour out your fury on the nations that do not know you, upon the kingdoms that do not invoke your name. That's from Psalm 79. Pour your wrath on them. May your blazing anger overtake them. From Psalm 69. Pursue them in wrath and destroy them under the heavens of the Lord. Lamentations three, sixty-six. So Jesus crosses the Kidron. Jesus goes to the garden to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John off to the side with him to pray separately. Mark fourteen thirty-three says, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now this greatly distressed, if you read it in the original Greek language, has this meaning of being thrown into sheer and sudden terror. Like Abraham, when he makes the covenant with God, the terror now falls onto Jesus to have to fulfill that covenant. And in those moments, Jesus realizing that he will be drinking the full cup of the fury and the wrath of God, and there will be no fainting. There will be no sleep for him to be able to get out of this. He prays that the hour would just pass, but as he ushers in the new covenant, he will have to fulfill the broken covenant by making himself like those animals cut in half, dying. No! Is there no other way? Not that cup. Can you remove that cup from me? Jesus prays in Mark 14, 6, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The next day, Jesus is crucified and he drinks the full cup of the fury and wrath of God. And look, he drinks all of the cup for you and for me. He makes a new covenant with us, with all people, a covenant of belief and faith and trust. A covenant for us to make disciples, to teach people what Jesus taught, to live the way that he lived to love as he has loved us. 
I hope these images will stir the Holy Spirit inside of you. I hope they will encourage you to trust God who makes and fulfills promises and covenants and that he will give you just what you need at the right time. The beautiful thing about this new covenant is that it's simple to enter into, but it takes your whole life. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no shame. There's forgiveness from sin. There's no guilt. There's no fury and wrath of God waiting for us. There's nothing stopping us from being in full covenant with God and fulfilling our part in the covenant promise. If you are a believer, if you say that you're in covenant with God, if you pinky swore, fulfill that covenant. There's nothing in the way Christ drank the full cup of the fury and wrath of God for you and for me. Let's live in a way that shows that we can fulfill our covenant promise to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for being able to ask. We're thankful for being able to to have the opportunity to ask to give us what we need. Because there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no wrath waiting for us, there's promise, there's provision, even in the desert times. So God, we ask to be able to have the strength and the wisdom and the and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would walk with us every day, that we're never alone to be able to fill, fulfill our part of the covenant promise. We thank you, Jesus, for this time worshiping and in your word, and it's in your name. Amen.